Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible therapist and author, Lair Torrent. Hello, Lair, and welcome to the show. Hey, Zach. Thanks for having me. Today, we are going to be talking about the practice of love. And for those that don't know, Lair Torrent is a clinically trained, licensed, and marriage family therapist. He earned his master's degree from Mercy College, where he was mentored by the renowned marriage and family therapist, Dr. Evan Imber Black. He was trained in Eastern psychology and thought at the Helix Training Program, a rigorous four-year multidiscipline training located in New York City. Lair has been interviewed by NPR, the New York Times, and Rolling Stone magazine for his expertise and work in couples and individual counseling, and he himself sees clients individually as well as couples or groups in his private practice in Charleston, South Carolina, and of course in today's world, also online all over the world. And he is here to talk about his brand new book, The Practice of Love. Break old patterns, rebuild trust, and create a connection that lasts. How are you today, my friend? I'm doing great, man. Yeah. So thanks so much for coming on. I have so many questions, and I just really want to get into your book and this idea of love as a practice. I really resonate with this idea, and I do think that love is something we can intentionally do and intentionally get better at. But I think for most people, it's relatively novel or unfamiliar. I think the common narrative around love is that our main task is just to find the right person and then we'll fall in love forever. But you might also talk to like a married couple and uh, they'll be like, love takes a lot of work. (laughs) So between like love is a natural thing that arises and love takes a lot of work, I'm curious how you kind of came to the conclusion that love itself is a practice. Like so much of the book, I, I, I talk about my, my personal life and how I came to the different practices. Um, almost to a practice, I'll sort of explain how there were these sort of eureka moments for me in my own life and with clients where, you know, I, I, I finally figured it out, I guess, that, that love is not mm. – um, something that we just innately know how to do. We can feel it for sure, but it's not something that we um, can just sort of set and forget and hope that we're going to have it over the long haul. I think it falls into that bin of things we should just know how to do, right? Like file your taxes, Mm -hmm. buy a car, all these things they never taught us in high school or in college. We were just supposed to know how to do them and we don't. And so I was watching these couples falter and I was watching myself, you know, falter in my, in my, in, in my practice of loving other people prior to finding my, my partner that I've been with for 21 years. Huh, what if love was one of those things we needed to, you know, keep working on? What if it was something that developed kind of like a, 
you know, if you want to play golf, you know, you don't just go out on the golf course, you, you go and you practice. And if it's something you want to do well, you give it time. And that was one of those things too. I said, oh yeah, we do, we should want to do this well. And that felt oddly left out of the narrative around loving our partners, right? You should want to be good at this. And a lot of people aren't. That's why I have a job. <laughs> it's true. I don't think your love will be out of a job with how um, challenging love can be. And, you know, I'm kind of curious, kind of your professional opinion on on why love isn't more innate and part of my question is based on the really exciting research that's, hap that's happened in the past few decades around how important love is for our health and well-being. That we, as human beings, we need love, of course, to survive when we are at an early age. But that need for social connection, belonging, is just as crucial as food and water for our survival and long-term health. And we all need to be loved need to feel recognized and understood who we are so why doesn't that love for ourselves and for others naturally come out like why is it so hard and why will you have a job for the rest of your life i think you're right i think it should have been maslow's hierarchy of needs and i think maybe it was on his extended hierarchy of needs um, but it, it is something that people find difficult. And I don't think it's because it's not innate. It is, it is an innate thing. We as human beings, we feel love, we search for love, we long for love, all of that. I think what ends up happening is we get in our own way. Love asks us to entertain vulnerability. Love will bring to the surface all of our wounded parts, right? That's what tends to get in our way of our ability to have that free-flowing connection that uh, that allows us to go to depth with another person. It's those nicks and those dings and that wounding that also keep us from being able to truly love ourselves. It's true. And, you know, oftentimes the first thing a therapist asks somebody is, so tell me about your parents. That's <laughs> kind of like the joke. Because, yeah, we do all have some wounding in the past that has sort of covered up and been an obstacle to our love. So you mentioned a little bit about your own struggles and the struggles that you see in um, clients that walk into your office and you wanted to write about the solution and the way forward out of these struggles in your book, The Practice of Love. And just being a little bit facetious here, but what made you want to write this book? And don't you think there are enough books about love? Well, there was, we were missing one, Zach, one. We were missing one. <laughs> No one else. We can close the door. We don't need any more. <laughs> Honestly, it happened, and I explain a little bit of this in the, in the book. I, I included uh, Dr. Evan Ember Black in my bio primarily because when people hear that I was mentored by her, they are like, what is she like? You know, because marriage and family therapists know who she is. Mm -hmm. She's a really well-known theorist and writer in the field. <clears throat> and I was in my internship. I was having success with the models and the skills and the tools that we were learning with my couples in session. Everyone happy as they're leaving. But Zach, before those couples got to the elevator banks in my building, that stuff was going off the rails, right? Mm. For me, that just wasn't good enough. You know, I, I wanted to 
have a love that lasted in my life. Uh, I want to be able to to walk the walk in my life that I'm asking my clients to walk. And I didn't want these people feeling disappointed and like that. Eh, you become this anecdote at some cocktail party about how we did couples therapy didn't work for us. And so this this mentor of mine said, well, create something of your own. And so I did. And for me, the glaring holes were first and foremost, we were sort of segregated from Eastern thought. We needed to blend some ideas, right? So the Western and Eastern thoughts needed to mix up a little bit. But beyond that, I felt like couples really needed something that was simple enough to be used in life when you're triggered and in your baser parts and your most reactive places and, and um, uh, you know, you need something that, that we, I think when we're in those situations, when, when we are emotional, we do need simple tools that, that work. I don't think we were giving them that. Mm-hmm. These five practices of mindfulness, parts, narrative, choosing, and personal responsibility really spoke to that. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about the simple tools that you mentioned, and we can get into it when we get into the five practices, but I want to go back to how you mentioned bringing in Eastern thought. And I'm curious what traditions or Eastern thought are you referencing that you think can really help us all in our practice of love? Well, specifically mindfulness, not mm-hmm. meditation per se. Um, people will mix that up. Oh, you mean I have to go and sit on a cushion for an inordinate amount of time in order to do this? No, that's not the case at all. We meditate, hopefully, so we get residual mindfulness, an ability to pay attention to our thoughts and to our feelings with some purpose, right? Mm-hmm. We want to be able to be here in this present moment. And so, you know, that's that's primarily what I'm talking about when I talk about Eastern thought. We tend to point the finger. We notice everything that everyone else is doing. We tend to go externally for so much of our own validation. All of the things kind of pulls our attention out of our own mind and into the world, certainly to what our partners are doing. And this is sort of a seismic shift in the way we think about dealing with relationships, right? What I found out is there's no traction in what about you. There's only traction in what about me. And mindfulness offers us that opportunity. We push pause, we take that breath, and we go, what am I thinking? What am I feeling? How am I showing up? And this became the skeleton key, the universal remote. I don't think Western modalities, particularly with couples, are as effective as they could be without mindfulness. Mm. So I also love the power of mindfulness. And you mentioned you don't have to practice mindfulness via sitting on a meditation cushion. So I'm curious, you know, in a session or just um, in life, how do you encourage and bring in mindfulness when you do work with couples? So there's a woman named Ellen Langer. Uh, She's a psychologist and she's been studying mindfulness since the early 70s when it was back when it was, you know, a bunch of hocus pocus. (laughs) And, you know, her idea of mindfulness is you just have to start noticing. And she really does put it in its most simple terms. And the the tough part about mindfulness is, the toughest part about mindfulness is remembering to do it. Three-minute breathing spaces that you set your alarm to, you know, to go off three, four times a day. So you begin to practice being more mindful. Rarely do we take that moment to just kind of turn inward. And so it needs to be practiced practicing mindfulness, it's, it's, it's a remembering to do it. 
putting in three to five minute breathing spaces throughout your day, remembering to do a mundane task mindfully. If you're taking a shower, just be there in the shower, feel what it feels like to have the water hitting your body and to feel the suds in your hair. And and so practicing being in that sort of internal space, that more mindful space, that's what we want to cultivate. Mm. So that's really wonderful. And just to remind our listeners, you have this book, The Practice of Love, and it is split up into five distinct parts, different practices that we can use to bring more love into our lives and our relationships. So we've just mentioned the first one, which is mindfulness. And the second practice is on what you call knowing our parts, basically knowing the parts of us. So what are the parts of us that we should know about? So parts work feels a little new for a lot of people. It's really accessible though, because when I talk about parts, I'll say, well, you know, what do you mean? I'm just me. And I'll say, no, you're not the single organism you see staring back at you in the mirror. We are the many vestiges of ourselves. If you think about it, depending on the people, the places and the things we come in contact with. Part of you that goes to work is probably very different than the part of you that goes out with friends or the part of you that goes home to see your family. Um, these are distinct aspects of ourselves, and we've seen um, bits of this throughout the annals of psychology. Right? We could even we could even dice up Freud's id, ego, and superego as kind of parts. Virginia Satir said that there was a parts party inside of all of us, and we just needed to know who came to our party. That was kind of an interesting way to put it. And now we have Dick Short Schwartz. He came up with internal family systems, and his idea is that there is an internal family within all of us. And you know, he gets really down into it, and, and uh, it's there are some complex aspects of it. For me, I keep it really simple um, because I don't think people need a you know graduate degree in psychology in order to use this. We want to keep it again fairly simple if we can. And we mm -hmm. have protector parts that look like fight, flight, freeze. We've all heard of that. We all have an inner critic. And that's the part of us that, you know, protects us and, and keeps us distant from other people, often through a toxic narrative. That's the part that people say, oh, I hate that part of myself. Can we just cut that part out? And I'll say, no, you have to learn to love that part of yourself too. You just have to gain an ear to hear that person, that, that part of you talking. Um, and then we have the wounded children within us, right? And the fighters, the, the fleers, the freezers, and even the, um, even the, the, the inner critic are all there to protect our wounded parts. And we've all got them. Mm. That reminds me of Carl Jung's archetypes almost. So we have the protector parts, the inner critic, and the wounded children. And what are we to do about these parts? Well, we train our mindfulness on them, right? We begin to notice until we start asking the question, who's here? Who shows up? How do I show up here? How do I show up at this date? How do I show up to my partner? How do I show up to my to to my kids? And suddenly we start to get to know ourselves in a really interesting way. How do I show up as a, for instance, to the difficult conversations I have with my partner? Because people call me almost daily and say, hey, man, can we get into your practice? We have communication problems. And I'll say, you don't. No, you have a command of the English language. I just heard you do it. What you have is a parts of self problem. The parts of you that are showing up to that difficult conversation, whether it's a conversation about the money, about sex, about the kids, about whatever it is, you're triggered. And so when we reside in the compartment of, let's say I'm triggered and I'm frustrated, angry, I'm weapons hot, right? I'm in that part of my brain. I'm in that side of myself. My wife calls that part of me Mitch, by the way. 
And it, that part of me, like so many other people in the world, grew from a need to protect myself from th these vulnerabilities. Um, but the problem is when we're in these parts, we can't see other skill sets that we have. And so we're trying to have this compassionate, this empathetic, this understanding conversation with our partner. That's not the skill set this guy has. He breaks eggs with sledgehammers. Mm -hmm. He protects me. And you have yours and everyone, mm -hmm. my wife has hers. And so it's not about employing some communication device. Because when you're in these parts of us, right, these, these protector parts, what I think I heard you say turns into what I friggin' heard you say really quickly, right? And we start weaponizing mm -hmm. even the, 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 the conversational techniques that, that, that therapists will give us because we are protecting ourselves and we don't have the capacity to be compassionate in these aspects of ourselves. So the first thing we have to do is become mindful and aware that that part has shown up and then we have to move that part aside. And then when we move it aside, I'm wondering, like, what do we replace it with? The way you're describing the different parts of us almost reminds me of how split personality is, is presented in like media and television that like, oh, now I'm a 60 year old, you know, old woman and I'm meeting this moment in a certain way. And we kind of we notice it, we be mindful of it, we put it aside. And then what do we replace it with? What do we bring into the moment in our relationships? When we learn to take a mindful roll call of the aspects of ourselves that show up. So let's say we're having a difficult conversation. It's not going well. And we're taking some personal responsibility. That's the fifth practice. And we turn the mindfulness app on and we're like, take a breath. And we begin to notice, okay, who's here? Okay, this isn't going well. I'm angry. Um, my protector part's here. And oh, by the way, mm -hmm. you know what? My inner critic's here too because... That, that part of me is telling me all kinds of terrible things about my partner. And so I'm taking this inner roll call. And when we do that, a really fun thing happens. There's this thing called naming. It's an old Buddhist Eastern philosophy technique. The idea is that when we name something, we cease to be that thing. Mm -hmm. And so when we name the part, we say, you know what? My, my angry, frustrated, protector parts here, we immediately get a little space. And oh, by the way, you know, my wounded child was here too, because guess what? That guy's going to show up in my relationship for sure. But as we take mm -hmm. this inner roll call, the wise self comes to the surface. That part of us that has the capacity for empathy and all of the things we want to be able to bring to the table. Um, the wise mm -hmm. self is always there. It just is, it's kind of a very Zen aspect of self. It doesn't care what experience you decide to have. It, for, for the wise self, it's all grist for the, for the spiritual mill, as it were. But when we begin to name these parts and begin to get separation from them, the wise self comes to the table. I love that. It's so encouraging. And it's something we often do say in spiritual circles. You know, we have some essential, good, loving nature. And our spiritual path and task is to bring that nature to the surface. And as you mentioned, we all have a wise, compassionate, empathetic self. It's always there. And what I'm hearing from you is that Every moment, we're able to make a choice how we're going to face our situation. That's where mindfulness can help. So hopefully, we have the ability to choose to bring forth that wise, compassionate, empathetic self. Not always mm. easy. <laughs> like even when my wife's a therapist as well, so you can imagine <laughs> the conversation. <laughs> oh, boy. But, you know, I'll hear that part of me. It's like he puts, it's like Mitch puts his, his lips right to my ear and he's like, you get to say this now. And I'm like, I am not saying that now. 
right? You begin to have a dialogue with these parts of you. You, you may feel some pushback and that's how you know you're in, the, you're in the pocket. That's how you know you're in the sweet spot because you're beginning to notice that like this, I want to say this now and I know I shouldn't say this. I want to do this now, but I, I don't, I know I shouldn't do this. So that puts us in a really, it puts it in, that puts us in that place of, of choice. We choose the way we respond to our thoughts and feelings. So let's get into choosing because that is our fourth practice. So we're jumping ahead a little bit, but our first practice was mindfulness and our second practice was knowing our parts. And our fourth practice is choosing. And you write this in your book. You write, when we do things for our partners that register in them as acts of kindness, consideration, thoughtfulness, or benevolence, they feel chosen. And when we feel chosen, we feel loved. So tell our listeners more about this practice of choosing. Oh, man. it's I like to say that, you know, we we think we choose our partners on the big days, right? The day we decide to move in, the day we decide to maybe put on the fancy suits and the pretty dresses or whatever you're wearing to your nuptials, and we've chosen. And I say that's actually not Mm -hmm. the practice of choosing. The practice of love and the practice of choosing happens in the little moments of life. It happens when you're going to make yourself a cup of coffee and, and you make him or her one too. It's you see a bed that needs to be made and you know your partner really loves to come home to an, um, a neat made bed and, and, and you, you make that bed, even though you're, you know, maybe it's going to put you behind the eight ball on time a little bit. It's when you can reach or stretch in your partner's direction. It's knowing to some degree, to use a colloquialism we all be, we've all become familiar with, it's knowing and speaking your partner's love language to some degree. Um, even when it's not your own, I think we kiss the way we like to be kissed. We love the way we like to be loved. We touch the way we like to be touched. We might even give gifts the way we might like to get. But it's really about becoming aware of of how our partners need to feel uh, loved and doing and saying those things. Mm. I love that. I want to repeat what you said. You mentioned that It is the practice of love and practice of choosing that happens in the little moments in our life. And it reminds me of the Gottman practice of small things often. And as you mentioned, it also reminds me of Chapman's love languages. And I'm curious about resistance and also almost like a desire for reciprocity. So for example, when you mentioned like, oh, do small things for your partner, you know, make them cup of tea, make them this. What would you say to somebody who is like, well, I've done that all week and I haven't got anything back? (laughs) Well, I think that's a conversation, right? Like Mm. it's less about me having done these things all week because look, that's the ante up. You're going to, you should be doing those things. You should be making sure you're, you're, you're doing the things that make your partner feel picked, loved, and chosen. But if you're not getting the things that you need, then that's a conversation. And so then I would say, okay, Mm. let's make a time to talk. And first question I ask when we're going to sit down to a, a conversation like this is who's here, who shows up and to the partner who is not necessarily doing those things. Why? What's happening there? And very often what I get is, well, you know, I have to be honest, X, Y, or Z happened and this protector part of me is here. I don't, I feel I've, you know, I'm feeling kind of vulnerable in this moment. And there's a part of me that if I, if I'm honest, says I don't want to for this, that, or the other reason. Mm -hmm. We can then kind of root out aspects, problems, and kind of speak to them in a different way. Mm. 
I love that. If you're not getting the things that you need, that's a conversation. <laughs> that's time to bring it up. Let's talk more about what that conversation looks like because you mentioned, you know, we've already talked about how you want to show up in the right way. So when we feel like our needs aren't getting met, I'm thinking about how can I combine this with our, our idea earlier around bringing forth our compassionate, empathetic self? Like, am I being compassionate to myself or to the other person for like why they, I feel they are not getting my needs met? Can you phrase that a different way? So if I'm, I'm feeling dissatisfaction in my relationship, right? I'm unhappy for a litany of reasons, right? And I want to have that conversation with my partner. How do I want to show up and communicate in a way that conveys a certain level of empathy rather than say, you know, shame, blame, criticism, you're not doing this for me. How do you show up in that conversation and, and do that and get away from the blame game and all that? Right. It's a, it's a threefold answer. One, click on the mindfulness app, take a pause, push ask who's here. So that's mindfulness and parts. And the third thing is, what's the story I'm telling about this person? What's the narrative? And that's our third practice that we jumped over. But it's a really important one because the brain is in constant contact with the body. It's constantly having this, there's a biochemical conversation happening every day, all of the time. And so if I have a thought, my body fires off a feeling. We are the only animals in the animal kingdom that have that, the ability to sort of create these little movies in our minds that aren't actually happening, but we sort of think they are. This is where resentment comes, right? Like, and I'm not saying it would, obviously this, perhaps this partner has done plenty, but is your, is your narrative empathetic? Is it compassionate? Mm -hmm. Is that my partner who left the milk out again for the second time this week because they're lazy and only think about themselves? Or is it my partner who's mm -hmm. been working really, really hard and is really tired? And it's important to be mindful and aware of not just your parts, but the story you're telling. Because very, very often, it's the story that we're telling mm -hmm. about our partner that is the biggest culprit to why couples cannot connect. I love that. In our mindfulness practice, we look at our own thoughts and we decide, like, is it real? Is it true? Is it, you know, like Byron Katie, is it absolutely true? And there's so many different ways to frame a situation. And in our relationships, we always want to see the good in the other person. We always want to assume the best in them. So if they are meeting our needs, we can look at, well, what's happening in their life that's causing them to behave in a certain way? And also, what have I done to not necessarily communicate my needs? So I would love just more ideas around choosing our partner more often. You mentioned like the little things uh, make the second cup of coffee for them as well. Thinking about this idea that love is a practice, love is something we continuously do. It's the little things. And how can we choose our partner more often? And what are some ideas you might have around choosing a partner day to day? Well, my answer may be derivative and maybe a little surprising. If we want to get to know our partners really well, that's the key to being able to choose them well. You know, because Chapman talks about the, you know, gifts, physical affection, all of those are important. Sure. I think those are on the surface and very important. But those, those, those uh, love languages that we tote around with us, they're actually connected to something else that's really important, probably the most important aspect of the book. And I think one of the most important aspects of connection which, which is these four questions. Am I safe? Am I loved? Am I enough? And do I matter? Right? Mm. These are at the root of our wounding. 
we come through the world into the world as little babies, little energy balls, and we're looking around and we're asking, am I safe? Am I loved? Am I enough? Do I matter? And these questions are answered mm. by our parents, our families, our extended families, and then our communities as we grow through the formative years of our lives. And this is where we get our wounded kids from. So some things happen in our lives and maybe we got the sense that we weren't safe. Maybe we got the sense mm -hmm. that we weren't, that we didn't matter very much to people or that we were never really enough. We take those things forth into our lives. And it was Harville Hendricks that said it, and I'm going to butcher the quote, but here I go. We, we will uh, be drawn into the arms of a romantic partner who by their very nature will recapitulate our childhood wounding, but for a very good reason. And this is important because when I attune myself to what it is my partner needs, I'm really attuning myself to their core wounds because mm. it's not just the gift. That gift makes her feel like she matters, right? It's not just the words of affirmation for him. They make him feel like he's enough. And maybe he never felt like he was enough. I was reading this, this book called it's, it's Stephen Johnson's Character Styles. If, you, if you're a therapy nerd like me, read it. It's a thick one. It's a hard one. And so I'm reading that one day and my wife walks to the door, my then girlfriend. And I had found her in the pages. I was doing the thing that they told us never to do in therapy school, which is don't find yourself or your partner in the pages of your books. I realized that because of her wounding, having been brought up by a borderline mother, that the world was never a safe enough place. And she came to the door and she had had a tough day. I said, I know, honey. I said, I, I think it just sounds like the world feels like a dangerous place today. And she pulled back and looked at me like I had three heads. But in that moment, you couldn't have given a gift, um, made a date night that made her feel more chosen than in that moment, mm -hmm. if you understand what I mean. Mm -hmm. So we're speaking to some really core stuff. When we, we, we think of choosing as, oh, that's like, that's fun. It, we're, we're, we're talking about the deep stuff here. I love those questions. Am I safe? Am I loved? Am I enough? And do I matter? And I almost feel like we could turn them around to a beautiful mantra that we could say to our children, we could say to our partners along the lines of you are safe, you are loved, you are enough, and you matter. So that's the fourth. Fourth practice is choosing. And our fifth and final one is on personal responsibility, which to me is one of the most important but also challenging shifts because, it, because I think both partners in the relationship think that the other one is the problem, think that the other be, person's behavior is the problem, think that, oh, if they just did this or if they really understood me, if they really loved me, then all the pro problems in our relationship would be solved. So how can we begin to take more responsibility for our own feelings and actions? It's like you said, this is, this is the tough one. This is the jagged little pill. This is the one I don't put on the you know, front of my website. <laughs> we experience what I call personal responsibility as blame, um, typically shame. Um, we're happy to own the thing that went well. But it's a really difficult task for us to own the thing that didn't go so well, especially when the feelings are hurt or if, if we weren't taken for our intention. You know, my intention was to not hurt your feelings or make you feel terrible or shame you in that moment, but I did. And so I will get couples arguing over 
just that, you know, the whole, it's, it's, it's a classic example of the world last night at dinner. You said that in front of our friends. It really hurt my feelings. That's not what I said. Yes, it was. Cause you know, Sheila looked at me and rolled her eyes and couldn't believe you said it. And I said, well, that's not how I said it. Well, you did say that. And, and so it's back and forth, back and forth. And they look at me. It looks like it's like a Wimbledon match. My head's going back and forth, back and forth. And they look at me and they go, well, what do you think? And I'm like, I wasn't there. I don't know. But what I know is someone's feelings were hurt and you should care. And whether you agree mm-hmm. that your intention was to hurt her feelings or not, her feelings were hurt. You should care. Mm. The sell on that is personal responsibility is not giving up ground. Everyone thinks it is. Well, I'm going to be too permissive. I'm going to, I, I didn't mean that's not what I meant. Uh, that's you're telling me to own something that's categorically wrong. I mean, it's not categorically wrong because if we were to measure her feelings right now, her feelings would be hurt. Mm-hmm. You had something to do with that. And the more you can own that, the quicker to repair we get, but people mm-hmm. don't want to. And so they spin the wheels, right? And there's no traction in what about you? What about you? And what about you? And I mean, I, I have people who are some of the smartest people you've ever met, Harvard graduates, neuro, uh, neurosurgeons, brain surgeons doing this, just this thing. What about you? What about you? And so the thing I have to sell them is, is personal responsibility is not giving up ground. It's actually taking the higher ground. It's taking the road less traveled. It says that this space between us is safe enough. I'm going to own my stuff. You can count on me. And this is, this is an act of choosing, right? I pick you. You tell me that I've hurt your feelings. I'm going to believe you. And I'm going to do what I can to own what it was, whether I intended it to or not. I'm going to own that I hurt your feelings. I see that I did that. And for that, I'm sorry. I absolutely love this process that you are describing. And it reminds me of a conversation I had with a girlfriend years ago where for hours we were debating about what I'm sorry means. (laughs) Meaning like, you know, it's easy to be like, oh, this thing happened on accident. Like, why would I be sorry for? I didn't do it on purpose. Why would I apologize for something that was out of my control or was an accident? And the conclusion that we both came to is that, well, saying I'm sorry recognizes that what you did, whether intentionally or not intentionally, hurt the other person's feelings. And saying I'm sorry acknowledges that the other person is feeling hurt. And I'm wondering if you could provide a concrete example or even a story around taking personal responsibility. And it could be perhaps from your personal life or perhaps a client from your professional life. I'd love to hear about that shift where somebody was stuck in blame. They were like to their partner, you know, you are the problem and what they needed to do to shift and understand their role and what things they needed to take responsibility for. I hope not putting you on the spot or anything. (laughs) If it's okay, I'll share one that that I share in the book. It's a personal one and it's sort of fairly mundane but it's, it's in that way, it's kind of powerful. Yeah. And so I was, I was, it was the day after my oldest son's birthday and we'd had a backyard party just before COVID and um, I'm cleaning up and there's still some, you know, there was a, there's a cooler and there's a couple of beers still left there. And a buddy of mine stopped by who had been at the party and he came by to kind of help clean up. And so we were standing back there and we were just kind of talking and enjoying ourselves, enjoying the day. And, through the back back door to the to the kitchen, I heard both of my sons screaming at the top of their lungs. But I had gained an ear for just what type of screams my kids were having. Right, like I know 
That one doesn't sound like a broken bone, nor is there's no bloodletting here. This is just whatever it is. And my wife's in there with them. And so I just, for whatever reason, decided to just kind of, you know what, she's got it. I'm going to stay right here and keep talking to my friend and enjoying my time. After my friend left, uh, I came through the back door. And as in the book, I like to say, the, the food on the stove was not the only thing simmering in that kitchen. My wife looks at me and she goes, so I suppose you didn't hear that. And mm. her protector parts were up and she was definitely not showing up in the best space. And I felt that. And my response was terrible. I said, well, last time I checked, you had a voice. Right. Well, so that part of me was up. Mitch was up. I said it. It was knee jerk. It happened. And so I was at a point, right? I had, and she turned and she did something that she never does. She was, wasn't going to engage because it was crap and she knew it. She turned and she, I saw her back stiffen and she started to walk out of the room. Here I am right now. As I was saying it, I have to be honest with you, there's another part of me watching that was going, no, don't say it, right? And it was already out. And I just wanted to shove it back down from whence it came. But it was out. I said it. And so here I am. I can I have two choices, right? I can own what I did, own what I said, own what I didn't do, own the fact that I was being kind of a jerk. Or I could stand on the faulty precipice of plausible deniability and say, I didn't hear it, or I thought you had it, or you know, I could defend what I had said. And my defender part would do that, right? He wants to go, yeah, double down on that. Make her the bad guy. Who wants to own that? Instead, I said, wait, wait, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Please wait. And so she stopped, but she didn't turn to me. She kept her back to me, right? Which told me a lot, right? I'm going to go, but I'm only next words better be good. And so I said, listen, I did hear it. It was crap. It was terrible form on my part. I did hear it. I didn't want to come in because I didn't want to deal with it. And I was hoping against hope you had it. I should have come in here and helped you out. And I didn't. And by the way, what I just said, more garbage, awful form. I am so sorry. I should never have spoken to you that way. I never talked to you. We don't mm -hmm. talk to each other that way. That is not what we do here. And I'm so sorry. And she turned and she looked at me and she said, I know what you're doing. You're doing that thing you do, which is owning my stuff. But yeah, that's the thing I do. And, <laughs> and I said, well, I'm, I bet you're glad I'm doing it. And so that moment of ownership that could have mm -hmm. been someone sleeping on the couch, could have been, you know, an argument in front of the kids, ended up being a hug in the kitchen. Mm. Right. So personal responsibility was responsible for the repair, right? Yeah, I, I inflicted the wound, but I repaired it. And I repaired it in the moment and I owned all of it. And because of that, the space immediately became warm. The space in between us immediately got safe because yeah, we're going to step in it. We're going to make mistakes. I certainly did that day. I made a bunch of them. But in that moment of sobriety, I need to own this and I need to own this for her because I'm hurting her feelings. This is terrible. And that's what I did. I love that story. I love that you shared it. And, you know, it is challenging <laughs> to take responsibility. But it's amazing how vulnerability breeds vulnerability and how once one person starts to own their stuff, it really opens up the other person also owning their stuff as well. And we're running low in time. So I'm kind of curious if you could almost give us 
some realistic expectations around how good our love and how good our relationship should be or is going to be when we let love be this practice. And I say this for a few reasons based on some of the things we talked about today. One is that you mentioned like both you and and your wife are therapists. You know, you've had the training, you've had the advanced couples training and inevitably you still find yourself caught up in reactivity, caught up in not showing up in the best way. And I was thinking also about this idea of practice and sometimes practice can be like really hard and frustrating and non-linear, like even practicing the violin, like you practicing your scales that you've done before, but you mess them up and then, you know, you're like, I can't do this. And you, you stop through that day. You know, I'm thinking about how Gottman, you know, has this five to one, like positive to negative experience ratio as, a, as something to kind of work towards. But when we do talk about there is going to be conflict and there is going to be repair attempts, what to you is just like a basic, happy, healthy relationship? And what are some signs of just a a good relationship with some realistic expectations around how often arguments, conflict, and disconnection is going to happen? It's a big question. Uh, So I'll try to hit all the points. So for one, I like to say to say to people because they'll say to me um, fairly regularly, "Should this be this difficult?" And I'll say, "Yeah, but not for the reasons you're currently experiencing." Right? Mm. Love and the practice of love should be difficult because mindfulness is not easy. It's simple. It's just not easy. Looking at the part of us, practicing that, and 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 calling ourselves out on the carpet about the parts of us that show up isn't always easy. Learning to attune ourselves to our partners and, and, and love them the way they, they need to be loved, not always easy. Personal responsibility is a jagged little pill. No one likes that. Um, and but, it, but this is good work. And the more you do this work, the more you see the needle move in the right direction. The more connected you feel. Sex gets better. It feels more connected. feels more loving. Everything feels more kind. You know, it's like People tell me, sometimes they'll tell me, well, we never fight. And I'm like, well, that's kind of scary. <laughs> you should. There's no reason why, you know, if you're not, if you're not getting into it a little bit with your partner here or there, um, you're probably not doing mm-hmm. it right. Uh, we're going to, we're going to rub the rails every so often. And it's not about not fighting or it's how you fight. And so when I see health, it's in the way in which we, I say fight. I don't like that term with the, the way we kind of, two of our closest friends, they're really good. They're a really amazing example of a couple. And they laugh because they will get into it with each other. And he will invariably take personal responsibility and say, and oh, by the way, I hear exactly how I'm talking to you. And I can't believe I'm actually taking this tone with you. You don't deserve that for me. And they both start laughing. <laughs> and, and so you know, the, there's, there's repair, often immediate repair. They're not standing behind what I call in the book, the love embargo and saying, I'll show up when you do. I'll do better when you do. Mm. If she would just, everything would be okay. They're not doing that. And that, that's, that's the relative healthy couple, I think. There are going to be those things that feel really hard. But implementing mm. these practices helps us surmount them. I love that. It's not about fighting. It's not that you're fighting. It's how you are fighting. And obviously, we don't like this term fight. But it is... Not necessarily the challenges that we encounter, but how we manage them. Well, 
Thank you so much, Leigh, for all your wonderful wisdom. And I do have to finish by asking a question I love to ask all of my guests, which is, what do you wish everyone knew about love? I think it probably won't start. It probably won't be new, um, but that it starts with yourself. The more you can love the parts of you that no one else is clapping for, that's when it can really proliferate. That love really does start with oneself. And if we can look in there, I forget who it was, some celebrity called it hugging the cactus inside. <laughs> yeah, if we can learn to love those parts of us that, that, that perhaps didn't feel like they were lovable, didn't feel like they were enough, didn't feel like they mattered, that's, that's really where it all starts. And, you know, this is what, this is what a love relationship tends to bring to the surface anyway. The parts of us that needed to be loved. Bring to the surface what needs to be healed and the parts of us that need to be loved. Thank you so much, Laird Torrent, for coming on to the show and sharing us your wisdom. And for our listeners who want to learn more about you, how can they find you? And also, we're talking about your book. We're recording this in January, but your book comes out February, right? Yeah, February 2nd. Okay, cool. By the time this episode comes out your book will be available on amazon and for our listeners who want to learn more about you how can they find you uh lairtorrent.com that's just my name lairtorrent.com and also lairtorrent holistic therapist on instagram um, it's a great spot to kind of mm-hmm. get to know a little my, get to know my voice or hear some of the things that i think learn more about these parts and practices and all of that yeah i'm having to engage a little bit more with social media so that's fun <laughs> Well, it's very appreciated this work that you're do- that you are doing and spreading this practice of love and helping others love more whether or not they're able to come into your office and spreading these messages. It's really wonderful. So thank you so much for coming on to the show and thank you listeners for listening to the show. We hope you remember many of the powerful lessons we've talked about today including the power and mindfulness. If you can stop, pause, and notice what you are thinking and feeling, it will transform your relationships. Remember to notice the parts of you that are showing up in conversation, because when we name something, we cease to be that thing. And once we cease to be that thing, we can bring forth our wise, compassionate, and empathetic self. We can seek to meet the fundamental needs of being safe, loved enough, and that our partners matter. And love, of course, starts with you. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Lair. Thanks, Zach. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 